Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. This is episode 18 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm Chris Knutson, your host today for the podcast that is specifically designed and built for civil engineers who want to rock it in work and in life. You might have heard uh, the Don Rumsfeldism, probably not a word, but I'm going to use it anyway, about risks being the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. If you haven't heard of it, no matter, the intent of the talk today is going to be about risk and the risk that's all around us. Some of it we know about and can plan for and eliminate before it becomes a problem, and other risks we don't even can't even comprehend them, and they just they bite us when we least expect it. I grew up in the military in the early part of my career, and uh, there was a phrase that we always used, which was Murphy's Law. You likely have heard that one as well, and I think uh, in our engineering career, well, Murphy can be at play a lot. So one area of our profession that I'm really interested in is the topic of risk assessment and risk management. I became a lot more interested in it during my formal PMP studying, but it's always been there during my Air Force career, especially in disaster planning and emergency management, where you're always planning for the worst case, you're gaming for how the organization is going to respond if something goes wrong. You're essentially trying to think of everything that might happen that's bad and going out of your way to mitigate it and trying to find ways and solutions so that if it does go wrong, you're ready, which is a lot of what we as civil engineers do in our work. We design and we manage issues so that we don't want them to go wrong. But if they do, we want to be able to have plans in place that we can stem the bleeding and get the project back on track or to get the infrastructure system we're working on back in operation, whatever it might be. So in today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Carl Pritchard, who is considered the fun guy of risk management. He's an author of two books on the subject, and he happens to lecture all the way around the world. We have a great time diving into the topic that keeps engineers and project managers awake at night. And I think you're really going to enjoy it because, again, he's the fun guy of risk management. So how can you not enjoy it? But before we dive into the details, I want to let you know that planning is well underway for the 2016 Engineering Career Summit that we're going to hold down in New Orleans 12 to 14 May. And you can find out more about that event and learn about the great keynote speakers we've got lined up and all the actionable information-packed sessions and panels that are going to be going on by going over to engineeringevent.com where you're going to be able to get all the details Early bird tickets are going to go on sale in early January, so mark your calendar for both, both the event and the ticket launch. We'd love to see you in New Orleans next spring. And we're also looking for sponsors for this year's event right now. So if you're interested in joining the team that's going to make this event happen, shoot me an email at chris at engineeringcareercoach.com, or you can also shoot Anthony an email. You can shoot it to him at anthony at engineeringcareercoach.com. We'd love to hear from you, and more importantly, we'd love to see you in New Orleans next spring. So sit back and listen up to episode number 18, Risk Management in Your Civil Engineering Career with Carl Pritchard. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation segment, where we talk with a civil engineering or project professional who has had success in their field or is striving towards a specific goal and needs some advice or encouragement. And today's guest doesn't need any advice and encouragement. In fact, he's here to help give us some advice and encouragement and about risk management. 
and it's Carl Pritchard, who was actually considered the fun guy of risk management, having authored two books on the subject and lectures around the world. He teaches project and risk management, consults on risk management practice, and works to ensure that organizations embrace the possibilities of risk management rather than fear it. And he's also the U.S. correspondent for the British project management magazine, Project Manager Today, and is on the board of directors for projectconnections.com. Carl, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Christian. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. When I saw your bio, I kind of got the chuckle here with the fun guy of risk management, because those are typically two terminologies or two sets of words that don't normally go hand in hand. So I'm going to ask you right off the bat, how did you become the fun guy of risk management? Well, actually, the whole risk management thing was rather serendipitous. And I've always been a believer that if you're not having fun at your job, there's no point in doing it. So I think one of the things that people get lost on is they start thinking risk management, they automatically start thinking, oh, how depressing, how, how defeating and, you know, all the bad things. And no, you know, the inverse is true. The reality is if you know what's coming, you can plan for it, you can embrace it. You can steer into the wave, as it were, and have a much better experience. And I think it's a matter of if you bring enthusiasm to the table on almost any topic, from civil engineering to risk to anything, you have the opportunity to actually get people to look at it in a different light, to look at it and say, you know what? This isn't all bad. This isn't all dry and painful. This is actually something that I could live with, I could handle. And if you get people that far down the road on risk – you've actually made some really incredible strides. Yeah, I would say so, because just even in this brief discussion we're having right now, I've never looked at risk as being something that I would add enthusiasm to. But you're right, I guess it's really it becomes almost like a mindset. If you shift your mindset from looking at risk as being a, you know, this horrible thing that we have to dread to being just another issue associated with a project or a design or whatever it is that we're dealing with, then it just becomes one other element that we take into account and we press forward. So that's what an awesome way to look at things. And of course, I guess the next question I got to ask is, you know, how did you arrive at shifting into that mindset? Because it just seems to me that so much of the terminology associated with risk management and so much of the education, at least that I personally have received on, on risk management practices is more of the negative of how do we eliminate the negative? How did you make that mindset shift? I, I think a lot of that came out of just where I came from was cornered into becoming the risk guy for the company I was working for because our risk guy quit. So it was wow. just one of those things where I was like, hey, Carl, you're the new risk guy. And it was like, what? And so they sent me to all these trainings. I went through all the programs and everything to try and understand and get my handle on risk. And the more I heard people talk about it, the sadder it became. And as I listened to them, it was like, oh, You've got it all wrong. Yeah. And I have always been the glass half full kind of guy. And as a result, as I watched people do this, I felt like there was a real need to look at it from a better perspective, to look at it and say, no, 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 no. There's hope. There's promise. There's a better day ahead. Wow, that's great. This makes me doubly glad that I've got you on the show because I'm going to be learning along with all the listeners as we go through with some of the questions and the discussion we're going to have today. Because although I, I'm very optimistic on a lot of elements, whenever the word risk gets thrown at me, it's you know automatically kind of the shields go up and there's a, a, just a different mindset that I approach it with. So most of us in the engineering career field and in the project realm, whether it's with civil engineering or any other types of projects, we know about risk, but what in your mind constitutes risk in the context of a project? 
frankly, I know there's the risk side, the threat side, and the opportunity side. And I love the people who have embraced the opportunity side. Don't get me wrong on this, but it's all the bad stuff that can happen to us. The opportunity is that we can actually avoid the bad stuff, which is the good news on all this. Risk in the context of a project, though, is being doing a little plant clairvoyance, looking into the crystal ball and saying, okay, what nasty things could befall us and how can we either avoid them or how can we, if they do come to pass, leverage them to our best advantage? There was an episode recently, not too many months ago, that you may recall where a there was an EPA crew that was actually doing serious civil engineering in a mine out in Colorado. I don't know if you heard about this particular story. No, I didn't hear about this one. Fill me in. Well, they turned a river yellow. Oof. All the EPA was doing was they were supposed to be doing some serious heavy testing. And they were in there with bulldozers and everything else trying to figure out how they were going to be able to mitigate all the heavy metals that were leaching in this gold mine. And instead, what they did was they broke through two protective dams and poured all of the heavy metals out into the local rivers and into the aquifer. So it went from being just where they were trying to assess what could go wrong to actually creating the problem. And they created this huge, massive problem. Frankly, the moment that happened, people should have been looking at, okay, how can I leverage this to best advantage? How can I actually take advantage of the situation? Because, frankly, it's a huge black eye for the EPA in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also one of those situations where had they been playing their cards properly, had they actually been assessing risk well, the moment that happened, or as they were planning for it, gee, what happens if we happen to release all these heavy metals into the water, they could have instead had a game plan for here's how we're going to deal with the media, here's how we're going to deal with the public, here's how we're going to assure people, here's how we're going to have a mitigation plan already in place so that all those balls would have been carried forward. Instead, they dropped into reactive mode. And risk management in the context of a project is never being reactive it's being wholly proactive. It's having that mindset of, I am going to be prepared for almost anything that happens. I was telling you before we got started, just got an Airstream trailer. <laughs> really excited about this, a, a little Bambi. But I was fascinated because I've never owned a trailer before. I was fascinated learning that you have to you know, put the ball onto the uh, or put the trailer onto the little ball on the back of your car. You lock that down and then you connect the wiring and then you connect the metal chains and then you connect the brake lock that automatically kicks the brakes on the trailer if it breaks free from your car. And then you connect the stabilizer hitch. And it was this whole laundry list of then, 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 then. And obviously, what people have done over the years is figured out not, okay, what do I do as my trailer is bouncing down the road behind me by 10 miles? Instead, <laughs> it's all about this proactive measures that are taken so that, okay, here's if a bad thing's happen, Here's if a worse thing happens. And here's if real darkness comes to pass. And risk management in the context of a project is having 
all those fail-safes in place, or at least knowing what they are, before you ever get started. So that seems to maybe the engineer that hasn't worked in the risk planning processes before to seems just maybe seems to be just a lot of a lot of extra work. And sometimes maybe even for risks that may be really not likely to happen. And I've got a little bit of a, you know experience in the in the risk realm as well, just for my career in the Air Force with a lot of the risk management plans that we did for civil engineering projects, uh, especially ones when we were on contingency deployments, and then uh, emergency management response plans for you know for disasters and whatnot. But from a civil engineer's perspective in their day to day work. How do they articulate to their senior stakeholders, maybe their engineering managers, the importance of planning and budgeting for risk? Because obviously this takes time and perhaps takes time away from billable hours. But uh, is there a way that they can properly articulate that so that it's not looked at as being overhead or wasted time, that it's actually looked at as being a, a really a good portion of the actual planning of that project? I taught risk management for the Project Management Institute for their Global Seminars World Series for over a decade. And and one of the things, or a couple of the things that we did were, for one, we started every class by telling people, everything we do in this class can be accomplished with your team in a matter of a couple of hours. Risk management doesn't have to be a huge time sucker. The key, though, is to have the right tools. And some of the tools are, for one, we're not the ones who have to come up with all the risks. The best risks come from all the people who do the work on the day-to-day. It's asking the people who are out there in the field, looking at the site, evaluating the situation. Those are the ones who have a much better grip on what the risks are. The second thing is don't turn risk into free-floating anxiety. Way too many people, when you ask them, what's a big risk on this particular project? Oh, weather. Weather is not a risk. Mm -hmm. What's the weather event you're worried about? And if it does come to pass, what's the impact you're sweating about? So we may have a hurricane knocking down the walls before we ever get them up. Okay, there. That's specific. That's something I can wrap my arms around. I could do something about. And as you were pointing out, can budget for. But the only way I'm going to get those is by actually having this huge laundry list of risks. The tragedy is we often try and do this by doing some kind of group group where we get everybody in one room and say, okay, what are the risks? And we write them up on a flip chart. What a waste of time. I frankly am much more keen on having people just create their own laundry lists from a format. You tell them it has to include the bad thing that may happen, the impact it may cause. I need both those pieces. But getting people to write them out on their own create their own laundry list, and then my job becomes to compile that list, to actually look at the list and evaluate it, recent experience, past experience, and consistent criteria. I think those are the big things we need to do up front. If you're looking for how can people improve tomorrow, for one, stop trying to do it all yourself because you don't have the time, the effort, or the energy. And the second thing is, is get people to give you the data and then call through it against consistent metrics. You need to know how high high is. Yeah, definitely. And again, with some type of a template or a format and just saying, okay, what is the risk? Let's define it, put some words around it, make sure that we know what this thing looks like, and what's the impact if it's going to happen? You know, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Would you look at it as like, what's the worst that could happen to the least that could happen? Would you put it like on a rating scale, or is this something you just say, here's the absolute worst and go to the, you know, for the worst case scenario? 
you're just missing one word there. It's the worst case realistic scenario. <laughs> Keyword. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some people will go, Oh, and then you die. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> okay. You know, you know, what are the odds I'm actually going to die here? And they're generally pretty remote. So let's go to worst case realistic. And the example I've used forever is whacking a deer when you're out driving and you know, What's the worst case realistic scenario? Yeah, you could die. But what's the worst case more realistic scenario is you're going to do some damage to your car and to the deer. You know, that's that's a far more realistic kind of scenario. Yep. That's a great way of putting it. I like that. So that kind of plays into, you know, right on the heels of, you know, as we're going through this this process of doing risk assessment, which doesn't have to be something like you're sitting at a Ouija board trying to come up with, you know, come up with all these this shopping list is maybe to kind of pull the string and unpack a little bit more of this, this talk about contingency funding, because obviously on, on most projects, there's a set amount of money. As you go through and start planning for all these known unknowns or even unknown unknowns, you could get yourself, you know, really quickly, you could start running project costs up if you're trying to have a lot of contingency. So what are your thoughts about how to approach establishing contingency funding? Is this something that we just build on top of this list that we've got going to try to put realistic estimates on it? Or is there some other methodology that you've seen used in the industry for really getting good contingency funding assessments? Contingency funding needs to be project specific because Christian, you're doing a project and it's a walk in the park. You've done it 20 times before. You know what's coming. Your contingency budget should be very, very small. By contrast, first time out of the box, we've never gone here before. It is working in that gold mine in Colorado. Frankly, my contingency budget should be enormous. And the reason is it should be scaled to the risk associated with the project. The problem is most organizations don't have any kind of risk models. And a risk model is uh, you know, a, a weighted scorecard, a decision scorecard that basically will tell you, oh, this project is high threat, this one is low threat, this one's high opportunity, this one's low opportunity. And most organizations haven't built those kinds of models. That's one practice you can go with. Some people want to try and budget risk by risk by risk. That's fine, but then you get down to the whole notion of expected monetary value and saying, okay, how do I put a price tag on all of these? And one organization I worked with, big engineering firm in Sweden, kind of interesting. They spent an inordinate amount of time trying to create those kinds of budgets. Another firm I worked with here in the States, they went with a risk model. And the funny thing is, they both had just about the same amount of luck with their contingency funds. So I'm much more a fan of the thing that takes less work, Yeah. which is once you set up a model that's going to be consistent within your organization, then you allot a percentage of contingency based on how did you score on the model? How did you actually do? How did you fare on all that? Good information right there. As we kind of walk down this road talking about risks, you know, we're really kind of talking about risks in the implementation stage, but in my mind, you know, there's different risks that we have all throughout a project. So concept phase, design phase, you know, obviously the implementation phase, et cetera. What in your mind are some of the differences that an engineer maybe wants to keep in mind as they go through these different stages of a project? Do we have higher risk at different stages versus other ones, or is it pretty much a, a standard level of risk all the way throughout? The biggest thing to remember in any phase of the project is 
you will not be destroyed by a meteor. That is not the risk that's going to hit you. And people tend to, early on particularly, start looking at these cataclysmic ball of fire kind of risks where the entire world just goes up in blazes. And they're like, oh, we're doomed. Those aren't the risks that are going to bury you. We are going to be dying the death of a thousand paper cuts. So we need to keep it focused on the small. At the concept phase, there are things that on a small scale, we consistently chew up and foul up the concept phase where we just just make the mistake of, oh, we didn't do clear enough requirements. What a shock. <laughs> you know, and at the concept phase, that is the single most common risk. And it's something that is completely mitigatable. You know, we could spend more time building effective requirements, building effective designs, laying things out ahead of time. But unfortunately, everybody let's get to work, let's move this along, let's hustle it up. And that's a huge mistake, but it's a risk that happens on a regular basis in the concept and design phases. And it's one that people tend to blow off as being, well, yeah, we do have problems with requirements, but we generally find a way around them. No, that's not what risk management is all about. Risk management is actually about managing the risk and doing it proactively. That's good insight on that one as well. So as we proactively go through this process, you know, I'm digging back into my PMP background and there's this discussion of the risk matrix. So if I'm a project manager, I've got a civil engineering project that's out under execution. I happen to be fortunate enough to be working in an organization that has some type of a risk assessment process. We use a model to try to help us determine what types of contingency funding that we need to have. How often does that project manager need to be truly managing the risk? Is this something that they're doing on a daily or a weekly basis? Or is there sort of an industry standard? Or is this just going to be based off of what the levels of risk associated with a specific project? I used to ask that question all the time in class. And it was funny. I had uh, one student, I said, how often should we cycle back through this? I had one guy go, I'm going to do this every day. And I looked him square in the eye and I said, just shoot me now. This is, <laughs> yeah, what a horrible idea. It's not an every single day. Yes, we are living with tracking the risks on a ritual basis, but let's go back and reassess and reevaluate. Should be happening at either major stage gates in the project, at regular intervals, and that interval shouldn't be more than if you're on a really short fuse project, which most civil engineering projects are not maybe once a month, but probably once every couple of months is a real reasonable time frame to go back and, and review, have new risks cropped up, have old risks gotten ready for retirement. And that's a big distinction we want to be ready to make is sooner or later, you have to let it go. Sooner or later, there's no longer a risk of death by buggy whip. That's actually a great segue and lead into the next question that I wanted to ask you, because I actually read this off of uh, one of the project management groups on uh, LinkedIn, and it had to do with regards to how do you guard against what this project manager termed as a zombie risk. So this is a risk that's been retired. Everybody thinks it's gone, but it's come back from the dead to plague a project. Have you come across this in your professional career or have had any conversations with project managers that are out there about how they guard against these zombie risks? And is this something that you also take into account as you're doing the you know, kind of like your review of your risk matrix? 
when it comes to the risks that are you know, back from the dead, as it were, generally our problem with retiring risks is sometimes we retire them too soon. So again, I go back to a proactive stance. I'm not a big believer in zombie risk. I tend to believe that risks don't come back from the dead. They were never dead to begin with. Good distinction. Yeah. And I think if we're honest to ourselves, we can go ahead and continually lower the probability till it's down to close to death, but we never want to zero it out until we are sure there is no way it can come back and resurface. Now, if we are suffering from this, if this happens to be one of the things that your, your organization tends to foment as a bunch of risks that just keep coming back and, and abuse us and slap us around, the argument there is – well, if you're doing the same thing, then you're the definition of insanity. You need to change your approach to those risks. You need to change them entirely. My problem is that I think a lot of people keep doing strategies that no longer matter. One of my favorite examples of this, if you have ever been on an airline flight over land in the United States, you've heard the announcement. In the unlikely event of a water landing, your seat bottom <laughs> cushion may be used as a flotation device. That announcement has been made since 1946 on American overland aircraft. That's brilliant. Yeah. And the Washington Post in 2006 ran an article titled 60 Years of the Announcement. And they posed the question, how many lives have been saved? Hugging their seat bottom cushion to their chest? And the answer is zero. Here we are now 70 years later, and we're looking at not a single life has been saved. These suckers are nothing more than croutons for the sharks. <laughs> the big question becomes, at what point do we stop doing risk mitigation? You know, versus zombie risk should be zombie mitigation. It's we keep doing these strategies that have no efficacy whatsoever. They don't do us any favors. It's like filling out a form or a template the organization requires. And when you ask them, why do you require this? Oh, it's uh, to keep us on the straight level. Well, has it ever helped anyone? That's a great question. There's crickets. Yeah. And it comes back to I'm not nearly as worried about zombie risk as I am about zombie mitigation. It's a great distinction. It starts making me think about my own background and knowledge of, of the operational risk management process, which really looks at the probability of occurrence on a risk. Again, going back to that determination of what the level of impact is, you know, really being honest about what's the probability that this is going to happen and what the associated level of the impact is going to be. And I think you could probably roll that into the, this zombie mitigation of, again, of trying to solve a problem that really isn't, has no probability of occurrence or really no probability of negative impact on the project. So good distinction. So if there was one book on risk assessment or risk management, we're going to include the links to, to your own books, but one book on risk assessment or risk management you'd recommend, what is it? Outside of my own, obviously, like, you know, risk management concepts and guidance and the risk management memory jogger. So we got those two up on the plate. Other ones I, I tend to look at and favor most are kind of oddball books, but I, I really like the book Against the Gods. If you want just kind of a, uh, I don't want to call it a light read, but a perspective on risk management, read the Darwin Awards sometime. <laughs> no, seriously, because it, it is a very healthy reminder about just how how much we tend to 
just die from our own stupidity. I really liked you know, Black Swan, everybody's favorite, of course, is, is another big one out there. But I'd say as far as just really getting in and getting a sense of we should just save ourselves from being our own version of stupid, I think the Darwin Awards actually goes a long distance in the right direction. I'm actually going to enjoy linking that one up because it'll, uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll bring me back into taking a look at it again. So that's, that's a great one. So, you know, as you bring up the Darwin Awards, the next question that just literally popped in my head as soon as you said that is, is, is do you subscribe to the, uh, the old adage of Murphy's Law? You know, whatever can go wrong will go wrong? It's or can go wrong may go wrong. I think that that would be my version of Murphy's Law. And the reason being is because I never assume whatever can go wrong won't go wrong. I actually live the full dream of every little disaster that could possibly happen at some point or another, I'm sure it's going to happen. So I have strategies on top of strategies on top of strategies. And, and it's funny because I'll have people go, why are you leaving so early for this event? And I'll be like, because we've never been there before. We have no idea what the facility looks like. Have you checked out parking? I looked on Google Maps. I couldn't find any parking nearby. It looks like this is going to be a real pain in the patoot. And we're going to be walking about two miles. And they go, oh, you are so paranoid. And then after we've finished the first mile and a half of walking from the nearest parking lot, they're going, wow, it's a good thing we left early. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that way. <laughs> That's just good risk mitigation and at, at motion. So awesome. Well, Carl, I, I've got one last question as we get ready to wind down the interview here. And it's one that I ask all the guests uh, that, that I get the chance to interview for the podcast. And that's if there was one thing that you would have done differently in your professional career, if you could go back or what is one of the best decisions that you made in your career and why? Actually, those two are inextricably linked for me. And the reason I say that is because my career has been serendipity defined. It really is. And it's a function of I've had every job known to humankind. I've been uh, a baker, a roofer. I was in radio for years. I was the news director at WASH in Washington, D.C., I've had just a whole host of different jobs throughout my life, and the one thing I would have done differently, I would have hustled it up and started believing that I could actually accomplish everything I've accomplished sooner. I would have started believing in, in all the things I could actually do a lot earlier. But best decision I've ever made is when opportunities have presented themselves, I have seized the day. When they told me, Carl you know, the risk guy quit. And I, I was like, sweet, I'm the new risk guy. I'm that guy. And I had no heartburn about that. And I think that's, if there's one thing I try to impart on folks is, is the whole notion of when an opportunity presents itself, don't look at it and go, oh, that's not me. Instead, the phrase that should be running through your head is one of my best boss ever, a guy named Ed Phelps, best boss I ever had, actually said these words to me once. He said, Carl, that's all we do. And he said, anytime a client asks you anything, those are the words I want you to remember. That's all we do. And it's kind of been my mantra. And a lot of you know people come up and ask me, Carl, can you help me with this? And I look at him and go, yeah, that's all I do. Sure. Glad to. And that has been, it's made all the difference. Really genuinely has. I appreciate you sharing that with us. That's a great mindset to have. And obviously it tells us, tells me and it probably tells all the listeners out there exactly why you are the fun guy of risk management. So there you go. I'm glad it's what you do. I've actually reached out and, and uh, put my hands on your books. I think those are going to come in handy for myself as I uh, 
move through my own professional career and as I get ready to go out and start doing some uh, project management support and training myself. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to have linked up with you. And I really appreciate what you're doing for the uh, project world. And, uh, and uh, it's been really good to, to link up with you. So thanks a lot for joining me today, Carl. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, everyone that's out there, we have got all the uh, links to Carl's websites, the ones that he's on, as well as his books and the other books that we've mentioned during the show today. You can always go out and find those, all the show notes for the episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 